Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. And welcome to the show, my friend from the Podcast Profit Accelerator. That's how we met. We met in in a mastermind group together. And I want to welcome to the show today, my new friend for the past few months, Mr. Nathan Mirath. Nathan, how are you out there today, out west? I'm doing good, Matt. Thanks for asking. It's not too smoky out here on the west coast, which is unusual for this time of year. So we're enjoying every breath of fresh air we can. Very good, very good. I love your answer because it's not, I'm good, how are you, I'm good. So I'm always looking for that. It's kind of a little trap I said. If someone says, I'm good, I'm looking to go deeper and understand why. short answers if you want. (laughs) No, I love love the real, man. I want want to keep it real, get to the good stuff and have a meaningful relationship and interaction with guests and with people. It burns me sometimes to see some of the chit chat that goes on. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? I don't don't like to do chit chat. Well, when someone asks me that, how's the weather out there? Sometimes I have to land the plane and they have to tell me that because I love to go deep. You ask me how my day is, I would say that I'm excited because today is September the 7th, 2023. I got the first soccer practice tonight. Super excited about that. I'm in the middle of recording three episodes on the show. This is the middle one. I'm excited to really dive into your world and, and hear what makes you tick and hear about some of your challenges. So that's all very good. And just excited in general. Let's kick off NFL football tonight. So fired up for all these things. Oh, and is that more. tonight? Yeah, man. It's Thursday. We got I the, s- the Chiefs Lions tonight kicking off. So I might. I hope I don't yeah. get you canceled. But um, I kind of stopped being as interested in football when uh, Tom Brady retired for the second time. So <laughs> oh, fair. Yeah, that's fair. A lot of stuff might happen like that. I think that when PGA Tour signed that deal with Live Golf and it became the new PIF thing, I've been a mad golfer for like my entire life, like fanatic, fanatical golfer. And now that that's happened, I, I'm not as interested in the regular everyday tournaments. I'm still going to watch PGA the majors. Tour, yeah. yeah, that really rubbed me the wrong way. There's a lot of backstory there. I got into golf a year and a half ago. I'm pretty passionate about golf to the point where yesterday I hit uh, seven over on a par nine. So I was pretty happy with my performance after a year and a half. Fantastic. What do you mean par nine? What is that? What's a, a par nine. Nine whole course, not oh, par nine. Okay, Sorry, okay. that's a lip sync. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Nine. Ho- See, that's how much of a beginner I am. Nine whole course, I hit seven over. That is still pretty darn good. That's like better than 90% of the golfers in the world if you can shoot bogey golf or better. Literally, that's awesome. A beginner doing that. So that's pretty cool. And let's get into the deep stuff because here's what I know. I know you're successful in real estate. I know we took a mastermind course together. I know you just spent a month traveling in France and Switzerland and and family. And These are the things I know. What I don't know and what everyone's dying to hear is what has been one of the defining challenges in your world. And you can start from when you were born up until right now today, just what's been the hard stuff for you, Nathan? Uh, that's a 
Fantastic question. It's going to be a hard one to answer without getting too emotional, I guess. But before I dive into that, just for context, because you touched on a bunch of things. So I'm a husband, a father of two. I'm in technology by day. So I still have a full-time job that I love where I work and I build technology products in teams. When I'm not doing all of the above, my wife and I work in real estate. Not the right term, I guess. We invest in real estate and we like to help others through coaching and whatnot. And we have a rental portfolio. And we're also big outdoorsy people. I'm a ski instructor, rock climbing instructor, do a whole lot of stuff. So we're busy people. But to answer your question more directly, the hardest time in my life, and it's actually both my wife's and mine, I think, I I want to speak for her, but is when our second child, so our now three, soon to be four-year-old daughter was born. She was born prematurely, six weeks early, as it happens for a lot of people. Nothing wrong with our daughter. It was, you know, my wife was going through or had preeclampsia, like it happens to a lot of people. So they had to deliver early, but that was only the beginning part of this horrendously hard journey in the sense that, yes, we spent the first four weeks, I think, in the hospital. My mm. wife was in the hospital as well for a few weeks because she almost died on the C-section table. Wow. So not a great experience. So she stayed longer. And while all of this was happening, our at the time, nanny decided to leave and move on to a new family. So we had no one to care for our firstborn child who was at the time two. So I was running back and forth trying to be there for my newborn daughter, for my wife, taking care of our son at home. Obviously, there's work stuff going on, real estate stuff going on. Wow. But that was also still only the beginning of the journey in the sense that for the following essentially year, our daughter developed a food aversion. So she did not want to breastfeed. She did not want to drink from the bottle. We thought she had all kinds of milk allergies, soy allergies. So we tried all these different formulas like a lot of people go through. But the hard part was that she simply did not want to eat. We finally found out that she had silent reflux, so basically throwing up without throwing up. So it kind of goes up the throat and back down. So the throat gets all burnt and irritated and bright red and bloody and all that, but you can't really tell anything. Goodness, so man. we found out after wow. putting a little camera down her nose and throat and figuring all that stuff out, which obviously was not a fantastic or a pleasurable experience. But what made this hard was we essentially had to force feed her for almost an entire year until she could kind of live off of solid foods that she finally enjoyed. So it was like every time it was time for feeding, which as you know, when they're babies and infants, you do this four, five, six, seven, eight times a day. Yeah, yeah. It was squeezing the chin, squeezing the mouth shut, stuffing a bottle down her throat, syringes, all this stuff, getting her to swallow. She would scream bloody murder oh. because she was in pain and we didn't know this. And it was like that for almost a year. So I think I've cried more as an adult in that first year than I ever have. So I don't know that there's anything that I've been through that was harder than that. But everybody's fine now. She's going to be an extremely strong-willed, let's say, child. So we're looking forward to that. But yeah, so that's kind of a longer-winded answer to your question, Matt. Oh my goodness. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I love about this show is when someone gives a real transparent accounting of something that was really hard. And I'm over here. <laughs> I've already cried today twice from stories that I'm on the verge, just thinking about having to force feed my kid 
to survive and not knowing and then finding out later, just, oh man, I feel for you. And I, I can really appreciate that you've been through something really challenging with the child. The thing that really relates kind of the most to me is I remember we have three kids and they were all born two vaginally, but one of them was a C-section. And I remember being in there, there's the third one, the C-section. And I remember watching that from behind the curtain and just yeah, thinking they course. are cutting open my wife. And it, it, it's different on TV than ER or in Grey's Anatomy than it is in real life. I'm sitting on the other side of the curtain. I can see nothing really. I see blood on the, the scrubs of the, of the surgeon yeah. doctor. And then I saw the baby and it was amazing and beautiful. And your experience was not exactly like that. And I'm curious what that was like for you to be in there at that time. Like what emotion was coming up when your wife's almost dying? Another great question, I guess, Matt. So our firstborn was also born through a C-section. It was not planned. It was after many, many hours, 20 or so hours of natural labor to try to have him born naturally. That didn't work out. So my wife was rushed into the room to get a C-section for our firstborn. And that went as expected or as well or good as it possibly could go. So that was my only prior experience with maybe not an operating room, but at least a C-section and all yeah. that. So yeah. I was going into this one figuring it would be very similar. You prep, she preps, she goes in first for those who you know have not been through this first. And you kind of wait in the room you know, for her to get ready. Then the doctors come out, they get you, you put on your bunny suit, you walk in, you walk past them behind the curtain, as you mentioned, and then you just wait for them to do their job. And essentially, it's 20 minutes. I can't really remember, but it's pretty quick. All of a sudden, there's a baby. They typically bring the baby to you, the father, because you're standing behind the curtain with your two free hands, whereas the mother is tucked under all this draping and curtains and stuff. That is kind of what I was going in expecting to happen. And of course, it didn't happen that way. So they took the baby out and everything seemed to be fine with our daughter, which is great. But of course, quick to kind of take her side and make sure she's breathing and doing all the stuff that they have to do on newborns. And as that was happening, and as I was trying to enter this mental space of me wanting to be with this second child and welcoming our second child into the world and all of that is also when the surgeon called whatever code they called because things weren't going very well with my wife at the time. And that's also when I turned my attention from our daughter, newborn, to what was going on on the operating table. And that's when I saw to kind of what you were alluding to, but the surgeon basically had blood from like head to toe, like they had these big plastic masks on and it's just covered in blood, what you see in movies. And you could tell we had obviously met this surgeon before several times as my wife's doctor. And so we knew her general demeanor and that had very obviously changed. And they called in the top of the top surgeons, you know, in the space, one of the best in the world who just happened to be visiting the hospital from Southern America that, well, at least the day we were there. When you see, not only do you understand that they're calling this top surgeon who just happens to be visiting, but then you see seven other people run through that door, you know something's not right. Then it just turned into they were fighting, struggling, all this stuff that, I mean, I'll let you imagine because they're not super fun to relive necessarily, but I was also paying attention to my wife, obviously, and you could see her slowly, well, become more and more pale, feeling sick, starting to fade out, want to sleep and all that, which is not entirely normal, as I understand it. That's when just emotionally and intellectually, it's one of the most confusing things because like I got a newborn over there, you know, 10 feet away on the table and my wife's 
on the verge of leaving us and they're not really quite sure what's going on. So yeah, sorry, with all that, Matt, I can't even remember what your question was, but very different experiences, obviously. Yeah, well, I honor you for sharing the depth of that. And that's the hard stuff. That's the stuff we don't know how to prepare for that when you see it, you have to, to really even have any idea what's happening. And I'm not going to pry yep. any further. I, I appreciate you sharing what you shared, Nathan. Thank you of for course, yeah. for going there with us. And if we could go a step further to the other thing that was very challenging for some context, there was feeding, feeding of a newborn who we don't know has silent reflux challenge. We don't know food that. Aversion of that. Food aversion. Nope. We don't know that though. We've got to feed our child for the first better part of a year, force feeding our child. And rather than focus on the process of that, so that's very challenging. What I'm really interested in is you said that you cried more that year than any year before. And I don't think a lot of men are comfortable than talking about this. ever in my life, I think, combined. Yeah, yeah. So I can't speak of it as a kid, but I mean, yeah. Yeah, if you would have said that to me five years ago, then I would have just passed right through because crying wasn't something that men do. At least that's the way I grew up, that we don't cry. We suck it up, we keep it in, we don't, this emotional stuff, that's for the birds. That's not the way that I'm supposed to do it. You're someone who appears to be more comfortable with your emotion or comfortable sharing it at least. So I'm curious your relationship with emotions through all this, if you've been able to grow or push them down or be free with them, just can you talk a little bit about how your emotional journey has evolved over the past number of years, Nathan? Yeah, and I think you used the best word there possible. I think it's evolved in the sense that I want to say I was in the past more like how you were just describing yourself, whereas men don't really have emotions, suck it up. I mean, I've always been a somewhat emotional individual or emotionally aware individual, and I'm not shy to necessarily speak my emotions or say, hey, I'm upset or I'm sad or whatever, but I wouldn't necessarily show it that much. And I think for me, having kids changed that. My emotions became stronger or more raw or more vocal or whatever after having kids. And that's a hard thing to explain because if you're not a parent, I don't know that words can do it justice, even if I tried, but that changed me. And to go back to your comment of evolving, where I struggled the most with emotions, especially, I still do today, but most definitely in that time, is like, there's part of me that believes that as a man and as a husband, I need to be the rock for the family. I want to be the rock for the family. So I want to show that, hey, things are under control. I am under control. Things will be okay. Okay, I will help us through that. That's just what I believe. I feel that that's my job as a husband, as a father, as a man. And balancing that just being at an exhaustion point, both physically and emotionally, because of the situation, there was points in time where couldn't hold it in, couldn't hold it back. And I was also just telling myself, what's the point? I am exhausted emotionally, physically. This is the hardest thing I've ever been through. And if I can't cry in my own home going through the hardest thing I've ever been through, then where would I do it or what's the point? But again, it was always kind of navigating. It was like, okay, this time I'm going to feed her, spare my wife, so to speak, because we'd obviously trade because it was never a pleasant experience during the first year. And I was like, I'm going to be fine. And again, for all parents out there is the minute you hear your child screaming bloody murder and you're continuing and they're screaming bloody murder because of what you are doing, that usually is stronger. It was for me, at least it was stronger than my ability to control the emotions, I guess. 
Yeah, you hit on so many places that I deeply resonate with, not from the circumstance perspective, but from the way I would feel and express emotion. I felt the same way. I hit a point where I can numb it, numb it with alcohol or some other numbing agent. I'm not able to control it anymore. And I'm really good at controlling compartmentalizing and I'm not able to control that anymore. It's just something I'm not prepared to deal with. And you let it out. And I appreciate that you share that. And as you say this, as you share the story, here's a lighter moment. As you share the story, I'm thinking, yeah, I never used to cry. Before my dad died, I never cried. And then I find myself occasionally thinking about him and expressing some emotion. But now that I've had kids, I will find myself like randomly just crying over some nostalgic thing. Oh my God, this is the last time I'm going to have the first day of preschool or something very sentimental or milestone. So I related oh, to that. percent I mean, I think since we had kids, for instance, I can no longer watch any form of media, entertainment, movies, TV shows or whatever that show things that happen to children or children are mistreated or they're kidnapped or they're whatever. Whereas before I would be able to emotionally disconnect and be like, I know this is made up. It's a story. It's just something to entertain individuals. And I didn't get emotionally involved. And now I just can't because I just put myself in that situation and I just can't. So it does change people for sure. Sure does. Yeah, we were dating or we were newly married. We used to watch the show Criminal Minds and we don't watch that anymore. And anything around kids, we definitely don't watch that stuff anymore. So I can appreciate that. Well, okay. So thank you for going down the rabbit hole on the hard personal stuff. And I'd love to get to uh, what is your driving why now? You're successful in business, real estate investing. Before you tell your story, my version of you is Nathan's a tech genius because I'm not as tech. So I would say that he's a tech genius, whatever that might mean. So can you help us in a little bit here? And what is it that you're passionate about in your career now? So first, I would never consider myself a tech genius, though I appreciate the words, but that is not me. Trying to think how to best answer that question, because there's multiple dimensions, obviously, to my life. In all of them, what is important to me is to feel like I am doing the right thing for the right reasons. I know that's very vague, but maybe to add to that, whatever I do, I want to do with intention, knowing that I'm doing the right things with the right people or for the right people. And that's true in why we're doing our real estate thing. We can get into that. That's why I still work. And I say still because very often you invest in real estate conversations. They're quick to go to, oh, you're doing this so you can quit your job. It's like, no, I'm not doing this so I can quit my job. I like my job. I like my job a lot, as a matter of fact. This is supplemental. It's more. It's for the future. It's for the kids. It's generational. It's all these things. But I think the biggest why, there's some things that are personal to me, driving me, the individual, personally. And then there's other things that are more maybe for the family, for sure, for my kids, for sure. Maybe there's other things for the world. I don't know if we're just making the world a better place. Well, yeah, take all three of those. Like what drives you? Like what do you really want? Ultimately, I struggle the most with the concept of time in the sense that I get excited about things that are going to happen in the future. My wife and I have date night tonight, which doesn't happen very often. I'm excited for that. It's happening in the future. I can't wait to go out and play golf with my kids when they're older and travel as a family to do all that. But also at the same time, I don't want my kids to grow up. I want them to come and hug me and jump in the bed and all of this stuff. I don't want to be close to retirement age, whatever that may be, because that means I'm maybe in the latter part of my life. I don't know. So I struggle with time a lot. 
I'm saying that to set the context around why I would like to, as much as I possibly can, be as much in control of my time as possible, meaning I can choose how, when, where, and with whom I can spend that time and for it to not be controlled for me, whatever that means. Nine to five, where you have to be there from nine to five, whatever it may be, or other household duties or whatever it may be. And a lot of what I do for me personally is to build my life around the ability to have that time flexibility or freedom. But I know for a lot of people, when you say time freedom, it means I could do whatever I want, whenever I want all the time. It's like, no, I have constraints. You know, kids have stuff to do. Kids have school. We have stuff to do at home. I obviously have a W-2 that takes up a lot of my time. I want to be a present and good husband as well. But it's having the ability to kind of move the blocks around, so to speak, that I can do and is important to me. I love that you're talking about moving the blocks around to help you with time to get what you want. I love that you've talked about things in a way that you're doing things that are the right thing with the right people for the right reasons. So there's a lot of intentionality. Can you talk a little bit about, you say you want to do things intentionally with the right people. What's that mean? Intentionally with the right people. How do you know someone's the right people? How's your filtering for figuring out the kind of people you want to do things with? I think at the end of the day, the right people for me are people who have an exceedingly high bar for quality, for expectations, for work ethic, for all of that stuff, so to speak, but that are ultimately givers and who wants to give back to others. One of my favorite books is Adam Grant's Give and Take. And when I read that book, that just changed how I viewed the world and people and whatnot. Great book for those who want to pick it up and understand how there's a lot of science and data now that explains how givers essentially typically end up ahead in life because they're generous and they're givers and all of that. So that's my filter. It's like people who are looking to give back to others around them, surrounding them, their co-workers, their family members, their community members, whatever it may be, versus wanting to take from others and latch on and benefit from and abuse and coast and whatnot. That's kind of my quick filter, let's say. I love you said Adam Grant, give and take. So I've got his other book, Originals, on the shelf. My wife gave that to mm-hmm. me some years ago. And he's one of the few people I follow that whenever I see something from LinkedIn, I pause and read it because I think there's always some depth Same to here. it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I wonder, uh, as we get into this depth of your intentions and values, I wonder, are there any other books, for example, that you've taken some value from that you can share with us today? Yeah, Daniel Pink's Drive and Daniel Pink's When are great books for me. So kind of the science of time and when, like how people operate throughout a day, I found very interesting. The Daniel Pink's Drive where he just goes into what motivates and drives, hence the name of the book, People in Life, Autonomy, Mastery, Purpose. I found extremely interesting. I loved Who, Not How, and I'm blanking on the author's name now. Dan Sullivan, Ben Hardy, man, that was a good one. Real good one. Daniel Coyle's Culture Code, I also very much enjoyed and has helped me see the world differently, I guess, and see people differently. Most of those, as you could tell, they have a people dimension to them. It's not just how do I better myself as a blank professional athlete, manager, public speaker, or whatever. Everything around people, everything around being a giver. I mean, the books you select are the kind that would really shine a light on everything you just said about your intentionality about being around givers. So that's cool to see that. Very congruent. 
I'm curious if we're going down the Nathan Murath rabbit hole here, I wonder, is there a certain type of music that inspires you or a genre or an artist that gets you into your creative space? So I think the short answer is no, because I like whatever it is when I hear it. It could be anything, something on the radio, and it'll just move me one way or another, or it has a beat that moves me, you know, one way or another that I like or something like that. And that's what gets me hooked, I guess. You know, as a family, the car, we listen to stuff from the 20s, like 1920s, not 2020. <laughs> um, classic music, classic rock, alternative, more electronic. So we kind of listen to a lot of, I love 90s hip hop a lot as well, but that's just one of the many things we listen to and I listen to. So I don't have a genre. I'm you should you. see my Spotify playlists because they're all over the place. Is there a certain playlist you have, like when you're getting down on the computer and you're just getting to work and crushing out a bunch of work? Like, do you listen I, to stuff? I do, go, do brown noise, just ah, brown, brown noise. noise or white yeah. noise or whatever. Just one of those yeah. uh, noise canceling headsets. And then that's the groove. Yeah. Why brown noise? What does that do for you? What I've noticed is usually if there's a melody or a beat, I will attach to that. Not necessarily like super actively, but it is there. And then I'll tap my foot or I'll wait for the next time the beat changes, which is distracting me from the task at hand. So whereas brown noise is just noise in the background and it kind of drowns out in addition to the noise canceling headset, it just drowns out any other external noise, really. Yeah, we use it to sleep. I'll turn the Peloton app on and put the sleep meditation on. And if I'm not asleep by the end of that, then my wife will turn on hers and she'll turn on the brown noise on Spotify. So we listen to that as we sleep. And it's interesting because you listen to it when you're drowning out that and getting hyper-focused. And I guess we listen to it to yeah, get hyper-focused Yeah, brown noise on is sleep. great at drowning out yeah. noise. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. It gets yeah. me focused on sleep. I like that we have something in common with the brown noise. I'm curious, when you think about real estate and the real estate investor, Nathan. Talk a little bit about how that came to be and what's that journey like for you now, Nathan? So it came to be, and I can't, every time I'm asked that question, I should actually put in the effort to go figure out where I first heard this. So I'll just credit Brandon Turner because I think it might've been him at one point in a podcast or whatever that said something like he had bought a rental property for their firstborn, put it on a 15-year mortgage, have the tenants basically pay down that mortgage. And 15 years later, by the time that kid was ready to go to high school, they would have this fully paid off income generating asset that they could use to fund their child's education, like university, college education, either by you sell it, you refinance it, you use the cash flow to just pay for schooling or whatever. And I just remember the moment when I heard that, I felt like an idiot because like, how have I never thought of that? Because this is genius. Why would I try to save 200 grand or 300 grand or 500 grand over the next 20 years times two if you have two kids or times however many kids you have and instead purchase an asset with 10, 20, 25% down, have to find a fraction of that total amount and let time and tenants basically pay down this asset and have this asset worth a whole lot more and probably most likely, I guess, enough to cover college education. I love that idea. Let's start doing that. So that was the initial catalyst, I guess. And then it was one of those things where you get one and they're like, well, it'd be good to have a second one to just de-risk, quote unquote, portfolio. I don't know if one rental property qualifies as a portfolio, but it was like, if our tenants moved out of that one rental, then we had to bear the expenses and all of that. So maybe we get a second 
to just offset stuff. So we kind of de-risk and then you get a third and then second kid's born. So you say, oh, we got the first kid, their quote unquote college fund property. Now we got to do the same for the second kid. And then you get to a point where these things are generating enough cash flow that after a certain amount of time, they fund the next purchase and the flywheel, snowball, whatever the best analogy is, starts. And that's how it started for us. Mm, Fantastic. Thank you for that origination story. I think that really is important for our listeners to make a bookmark because I've heard Brandon, I've heard him speak on Justin Fallon's podcast. I think he's got a cool beard. I've listened to him talk about his real estate ventures, probably heard the same story. And how many times have I heard some great story about financial protection or real estate investment and not taken action? Nathan just gave us a very simple, I'm not saying it's easy, a simple blueprint and a thinking behind it that anyone could follow. I don't know this going in. I'm curious, do you coach or mentor people in this space? Because this feels like someone that if we could learn from that, I mean, I know we could buy courses out there, but is there a way to connect with you or learn from you on this? Yeah. So we didn't set out to do any form of coaching or education, but as with, I think, many similar stories, our quote unquote entourage, friends, family, coworkers, friends of friends, coworkers of coworkers, just started growing curious and interested in what we were doing. Like, oh, interesting. You are buying rental properties thousands of miles away and you can do that and you don't go there and they're managed and it's fine and the investment works. It's like, yes, yes, yes. And you explain all of these things. And after doing it five, six, seven, eight, ten, twenty 10, 20 times, like maybe I should just record myself explaining this stuff. And the next time somebody asks, I'll send them that instead of me finding the time. So it kind of turned into organically turning to us doing some coaching for, well, whoever wants it now, really, but it started that way, essentially. So yes, there's a way to get a hold of us. And we have a very simple checklist for those who are interested in getting started in real estate, particularly remote real estate investing, because that's what we do and what we like. And the easiest way to get that is to just go to readyforrealestatechecklist.com. It's all spelt out, ready for realestatechecklist.com. And that's wow. what we use when we got started. If you check all those boxes, then you'll be in a really good spot to get started. Wow. Ready for realestatechecklist.com. Fantastic. And that's actually, it's quite catchy. It's easy to remember. I like it. Ready for realestatechecklist.com. And I believe also you have, uh, you have a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We do. Yeah. So I say we because we're several hosts that host this podcast called The Gentle Art of Crushing It. And it's mainly about success stories and success mindset and having these inspirational, motivational conversations with guests that share how they found success and navigated through harder times in life. A lot of the time, the guests that we have on the show are into real estate in one way or another, but it's not necessarily exclusively about real estate. We have three shows a week, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we try to cover, because we're different hosts, we try to cover a bunch of different topics kind of around success in real estate. So we do syndication, self-storage, short-term, remote investing, general success mindset and success stories. So yeah, that's the general art of crushing it. Nice. Nice. Well, Nathan, you've shared a number of things today. I'd like to wrap it up with a question I love to ask every guest, and that is when you hear the phrase eternal optimist. What does eternal optimist mean to you? That's a great question. And 
I don't know. And maybe my answer is I don't know is simply because I put a lot of intention and effort into being a glass half full or a positive person in general. It is one of my core values or whatever you want to say is like, I will actively and intentionally try to find the positive in any given situation that I encounter that might arguably be qualified as positive or negative, but there's always positive. You get fired, maybe it's to find a better job. You didn't get that role that you interviewed for. It's maybe because there's internal politics and you would have hated that place there. You got a flat tire, maybe it was to take a break and just admire the landscape while you wait for AAA to come by or whatever. So that's generally who I am. And that's what eternal optimist makes me think of. Not me, obviously, but that attitude or mindset. So I don't know how good of an answer to your question that was, but it resonates with me in that sense, in the sense that it's like, oh, that's maybe a much better way to say what I try to do actively and what I try to enact as a value around being glass half full and always looking for the positive. So maybe I am an eternal optimist. It would sound so. I love the way you start off with, I don't know, and then you worked it all out. And what you came up with was actively putting effort to being positive. It doesn't have to be more complex than that, actively putting effort to being positive. A lot of attention and effort go into being that, and that's fantastic. Nathan, I want to thank you for sharing some really hard stuff. It's sharing the values and your intentionality and being able to share with us a little bit about your real estate investing and just everything you've done today. Just thank you, my friend. You're much appreciated and been a great guest. Thank you. You are too. Appreciate you, Matt, and you make it very easy. So thank you very much for having me on.